Corporate Vice President at Whole Woman's Health, the lead plaintiff in the abortion case. I am so thankful. Um, for so long, we felt as providers so alone. And to see all of you here come bear witness how we bring our case to the Supreme Court is just unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you. As a Hispanic immigrant from Latin America, I know what it's like not to have access to safe legal abortion care um, in an environment where women's voices matter. This is why this work is so important for me on both a professional and personal level. But I have also witnessed firsthand how laws like HB2 can force clinics to shut down. I think about the woman on the phone that begged me to see her after her clinic was shut down by this law. And I still remember the desperation in her voice when she said, Please, please just see me. I won't tell anyone. Why can you just see me, please? And not having a logical answer to her because there's no logic behind this. Could you say your full name and where you're from? My name is Rose Barnes Covenant and I'm from Washington, D.C. Our generation has spent a lot of time thinking that progress has been made and it's being taken from us. And if we don't stand up now, we're not going to have a choice. There are a lot of women here that did this work in the 70s, and I think my generation thinks this is old news, and now we're an erosion of our rights, where it's harder to fight if they take it piece by piece, and it's finally gotten to a point where people have to stand up, and if not, we just we'll go back to the 60s. Springfield, Virginia. And why are you here today? I'm here because in the 70s, and 80s, when I had to worry about my reproductive health, I was able to do so. I don't think it's right for people with a lot of money to be able to fly to a different state to get abortion. Access, it's all about access. I had access, these girls should have access. I can't believe we're still fighting this. My name is Dr. Sarah Immershein, and I am an abortion provider. I performed my first abortion as a routine procedure in 1980 during my internship at New York's Bellevue Hospital. My professors, my mentors, remembered wards filled with injured and infected women and the many women who died before abortion was legal and available. We must not forget their stories or their lives, and we must remember women will seek abortion even when it is illegal. 
Abortion is medical, not political. Abortion is medical, not political. My name is Brenda Pearl. I'm an activist. I'm an African-American, and I'm a woman, and I'm a student from Ohio, and I'm here to share my story. In the summer of 2014, I became pregnant. I was planning to continue my studies that fall, and having a baby at that time in my life would have derailed my plans and goals. I had just enough money for books with not a cent more. I also had life. I also had a life path in front of me, a path I longed to follow. For that reason, I chose to have an abortion. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, but in the end, it was a decision to determine the fate of my life. The state of Ohio makes it very difficult for women to access safe legal abortion. First, you have to schedule an appointment to receive state-mandated information. It's misleading information that is meant to discourage you from having the abortion that is your constitutional right. They also make you have an ultrasound, even after you already probably had an ultrasound. It was a painful to feel I was pressured to listen to the heartbeat. Then, then you have to wait 24 hours to come back and the procedure itself. Personally, the biggest obstacle was paying for the abortion, except in extreme cases, you have to pay for it yourself. I am sharing my story with you today to raise my voice about the protection of safe legal abortions. And also about truth, free will, healing, and freedom. Thank you. We're here on the border between the pro-choice and the anti-choice sides, right outside the Supreme Court. Um, on one side are the pro-choice activists, and on the other side are the anti-choice activists. They have two competing rallies here. Let's talk to some of the people on the anti-choice side. I'm Kristen Hawkins. I'm the president of Students for Life. ended with the the officers being held a not not guilty which is a very disappointing verdict and I was at the courthouse for uh, two of the days of the trial very brief amounts of time and it is heartbreaking it is heartbreaking when someone is murdered and the people who do the killing are not held accountable and can continue to act the way that they've been acting. Uh, the evidence, there is plenty of evidence to show that uh, Alex Nieto is not a threat at all, and he is not even here to tell his story because he was murdered. And it was very distressing, and it's very distressing. And there are many folks who don't necessarily believe in the the justice system, so there's not a surprise on, on one of those ends. However, uh, still, some punishment for the people who, who murdered him would be a, a step in the right direction. It does not go back and, and change anything that happened, unfortunately. But people need to be held accountable for their behavior. 
Oh, so that's extremely, extremely, extremely uh, distressing. And I guess I'll go into uh, Tim Redmond from 48 Hills wrote uh, a write-up of it. There's been a few articles. Even in the Examiner, I've felt I've read some of the articles, and I don't necessarily agree with what they were saying um, because there still were some twists and turns and some lies that were were, were printed in the paper about the case. And as someone who was there in person, uh, can say that no this is not not what happened um probably the most distressing trigger warning you should put a, a trigger warning on, on life because there's a lot of violence out there that is not being either talked about or it's being talked about or ignored and people are not being held accountable so it continues to happen which is extremely distressing um alex nieto's mother elvira was was speaking about her son uh, very lovingly of course and was showing photos of him and just talking about him and she had a translator there and it was very, uh, it was it was very very heartfelt. And this was on Monday. And while this was happening, the the four officers who were accused of murder, they were passing notes among themselves. They weren't even looking at the photos of him. They were being, I thought, very disrespectful. And then, of course, if folks act disrespectful on the streets, why wouldn't they act disrespectful in the courtroom and other places too? And they just can't even. Uh, they can't even show any form of respect at all. And that was just. Just, I, I felt to be very, very heartbreaking. <sighs> so, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what's been been going on. And of course, this is something, an epidemic that happens across the, the country. Uh, people being murdered by the police. And uh, when the people do have an opportunity to then bring it to court, even then justice isn't served. And so then what's what's next? So people have been talking about organizing more. And I'm going to just read this uh, article here from Tim Redmond from 48 Hills, and that will also just go into a little bit more of what I'm talking about, and even more mistrust between SFPD and the community. And this was written by uh, Tim Redmond and uh, Sana Salim. A largely white, entirely suburban jury found yesterday that four San Francisco police officers acted properly and violated no laws when they shot and killed Alejandro Alex Nieto on Bernal Hill in 2014. The deputy city attorney who represented the cops, Margaret Baumgartner, later said that the issues were all about evidence and the federal standards for finding a violation of constitutional rights. The jury, she said, believed that the officers were following the law and their high level of training and had no choice but to open fire and release some 58 bullets into the air, at least 10 of which struck Nieto. That didn't satisfy the people who had attended the trial every day and heard all the evidence. As Baumgartner stood outside the courthouse to speak to media, Charles Pitts, a Nieto supporter, um, who's also a friend and also on Heterotopia here at Mutiny Radio on Saturdays uh, with Jeremy Miller, um, Charles has been going to the, the trial every day and taking copious notes. Um, so Charles, and P- Charles Pitts, a Nieto supporter who attended the trial regularly, interrupted her several times. What do you say about the fact that this doesn't even match of what happened, he shouted. They just kill us, brown and black people, off, and the white people think it's okay, and it's okay all the time. When do we get justice? He was not alone in that reaction. In the end, after all the discussion of legalities and burdens of proof is over, the bottom line is simple. Eight jurors from out of town in a federal case like this, the jury pool is regional, sent a very 
dangerous message to the police and the community in San Francisco. Many San Franciscans heard yesterday that the federal courts think it's okay for the cops to shoot young men of color with impunity. Adante Pointer, lawyer for the Nieto family, noted it's hard to get justice for a person of color from a jury that doesn't share the person's life experiences. He also said outside the courtroom that this trial was only part of a longer struggle for police accountability. For people who believe in the justice system, today's decision is a hard pill to swallow. The Nietos obviously wished for something much more, but the Nietos, through the trial and through the press, feel that at least the truth got out. Before the trial, all people heard was that there was someone who was behaving erratically, but through the trial, everyone heard that he was just another guy. In the words of a third-party witness, he was just another guy enjoying his burrito, and he wound up getting 18 bullets for it. But, he said, this case has galvanized the communities to fight for justice. Speaking to supporters that gathered at Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts, Refugio Nieto spoke of, spoke of his anguish over his son's killing. It was at the courthouse that I saw the images of my son, the bullets that had perforated in his temple, his body, his broken arms, his broken legs, his body destroyed. The young man had been destroyed. How is it possible for the police to sustain a story in which Alex withstood 58 shots and that a jury will find it in favor of the police? How is it possible? It's a shame on the city. It's a shame in the city, and we need to understand that this is a danger to our grandchildren, to all of us. The legal and political issues are just beginning. There are at least two other cases where officers killed young men in what can best be called dubious circumstances. Amalcar Perez Lopez, who was shot down in the mission, and Mario Woods killed in Bayview. In both cases, Police Chief Greg Sur has sided with officers who face no sanctions. In both cases, family members have sued, and unless the city settles, those cases will go to trial. We may be right back here again, Pointer, who is working on the Woods case, told reporters. The supporters of Nieto and his family are working with the activists who are seeking justice for Perez, Lopez, and Woods, and there is a growing coalition of people outraged by the shootings. That will be a force in the political realm as well as the courts. At the vigil, black and brown people of the Bayview, the Western Edition, and the Mission came together to pay their tribute to Nieto. Minister Christopher Mohammed gave a rousing speech, urging people to embark what he referred to as a struggle against police impunity. We have to now come together and enforce consequences, he said. This can't just be a moment, but this has, has to now lead to a movement. But the jury's verdict, rendered in less than eight hours, was shocking to many who attended and covered the trial. It suggests that the jurors believed everything the police officers said and disbelieved the other eyewitnesses who, unlike the cops, had nothing to gain from this, his story. To other officers, Pointer said, to let them say, I can do whatever I want. In that sense, this was more than just a single civil cast. It was representative of the ongoing crisis in the San Francisco Police Department, a crisis that has led to a federal investigation, a special panel working with a district attorney, and demands for new policies and procedures for the use of deadly force. 
At least, as supporters pointed out, Nieto's story was told. So often these cases are buried. Police review and discipline hearings are closed to the public. The Officer of Citizen Complaints is not allowed to release the full results of its investigation, and even the records of violent officers are not available to the public. So for almost two weeks, the media and the public got a look at how police officers operate, how they respond to questioning, and how a case that started off with a young man eating his dinner in a popular park wound up as a tragedy. We heard how the officers started shooting the instant they saw what turned out to be a taser, which some of the evidence suggested might not have been turned on and didn't stop after Nieto was down on the ground, gravely, as it turns out, fatally injured. We saw how the story told by four officers whose careers were on the line, if they admitted anything other than that Nieto aimed a weapon at them and threatened their lives, and we heard a very different story told by a man who had no motivation to make up his version of events. Three of the four officers were white. The man who challenged their story was African-American. The cops were trained and experienced at the cops were trained and experienced at testifying in court. The witnesses who challenged their version of events were not. The city attorney too uh, the city attorney too full advantage of that we can't trust the SFPD to protect citizens without killing them. We asked people tonight, young people, people of color, what they would have done if they saw a man with what appeared to be a gun walking on Bernal Hill. We asked ourselves, too. The answer was always the same. After watching this trial, I would never call the cops. We asked Baumgartner about that, about whether this trial sends a message that people of color can't trust the police, that the cops can shoot and kill with no accountability. I hope not, she said. We would, we would like to hope not, too. But trust between the local police and the community is at a desperately low level. And the verdict today from a suburban jury that doesn't have to live with the impacts of what they have done in San Francisco is only going to make things much, much worse.
So I'm at work and the police are trying to make them take this man house, which is very wrong because the tire broke and it wrecked into the truck and broke the mirror. And they're saying it's a hazard and their captain wanted out. I don't want no parts of it, so I'm gonna sit in my truck and watch. And like I told them, it ain't right. And karma's a bitch. And I don't want no parts of it. So plan A didn't work. So now they're going with plan B. Tear it up. And I, huh? I don't know if I can throw his stuff away. I'm not, I'm not with no parts of that Just because the police say? Do I got to do that shit? I ain't. Just tell John well you don't feel right. Don't get nothing off my truck. I got some shit, but I'm, ain't none of my shit getting used to tear that man house up. I don't want no parts of that shit. A video taken by a uh, San Francisco city worker who refused to tear down a homeless man's house. Um, so someone with a backbone who refused to to take part in that. So this article comes from Think Progress. A San Francisco city worker faces discipline after refusing to help tear down homeless man's mini house. And this was written by Alan Pike, and this came out on March 9th. And this is from uh, Coalition on Homelessness uh, uploaded the video. Um, a San Francisco Public Works employee who refused to help police tear down a homeless person's dwelling may face disciplinary action, city officials say. In a video uploaded to YouTube on Friday, an unidentified woman employed by the city describes the police department's decision to tear down a homeless man's tiny house on the side of a road. She is sitting inside her truck, pointing her camera at cops and bright-vested city workers on the curb. The police have just ordered the workers to dismantle the structure, and she has refused to help. I don't want no parts of it, so I'm going to sit in my truck and watch, the worker says in the video. Like I told them, it ain't right, and karma's a bitch, and I don't want no part of it. Later, she tells someone outside not to use any of the equipment from her truck for the teardown, because she's unwilling to participate even passively. The video was uploaded by the Coalition on Homelessness, a local advocacy group that's been critical of the city's approach to the homeless for years. The group told the San Francisco Examiner that the woman insisted they post the video despite the warnings she might get in trouble. A public works official confirmed to the Examiner that she is indeed in jeopardy. In general, 
We expect our employees to carry out their assigned tasks. Department of Public Works DPW spokeswoman Rachel Gordon said, to refuse could be construed as insubordination and subject the employee to disciplinary action dependent on the findings of a thorough and fair investigation. The episode is a useful reminder that policy decisions made by elected officials have to be executed by workers who may disagree with what they've been asked to do. There are scores of stories from all around the country of politicians ordering city workers to destroy homeless people's property. The resulting images and video footage are often heart-wrenching, but public employees can't necessarily afford to take a stand and put their job on the line in the way this unnamed San Francisco worker has done. Everyone from DPW, even the San Francisco police, they're all really frustrated about what's going on, said Coalition on Homelessness human rights organizer Kelly Cutler in an interview. DPW, in, in that particular area, uh, has a really good relationship with the people down there. So the turnaround, uh, asking them to do that, it's really upsetting because they've built these, those relationships. Sending workers out to rip down tents and other makeshift shelters is bad policy, according to the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. That group, which represents a broad coalition at stakeholders, a broad coalition of stakeholders in the advocacy and policy communities, has been urging cities to stop raiding and dismantling tent cities since last summer. The federal working group isn't looking to promote our, or foster such encampments either. Cities should treat the spontaneous communities as a bridge toward permanent housing solutions for, home, for homeless people, rather than simply leaving campers uh, to their own devices forever. But the forced dispersal of people from encampment settings is not an appropriate solution or strategy. It accomplishes nothing uh, nothing toward the goal of linking people to permanent housing opportunities and can make it more difficult to provide such lasting solutions to people who have been sleeping and living in the encampments, the group wrote in an August advisory. Still, many cities treat such camps as criminal. It can be difficult for local officials to resist public pressure to erase camps that neighborhood that neighbors find unsightly or threatening. Everyone on the front line knows this is not how you address it, Cutler said. The problem is the city is responding to complaints. They're reacting by doing sweeps or telling people to move along, but we all know there's nowhere to go. She added that the people caught up in the videotaped incident that may lead to a punishment for a DPW worker had been camped out just a couple blocks away days earlier when another sweep shuffled them down the road. But caving to public distaste doesn't do zilch to build homes or hire service workers. It may actually reduce a city's overall homelessness funding. The formula governing federal homelessness funding allocations now docks points for cities that maintain or promote policies to criminalize homelessness. Indianapolis recently veered the other direction. A law passed in February will require that cities' leaders to give encampments a full two weeks' notice before an eviction and prohibits evictions entirely if the city can't prove it. Uh, if the city can't prove it has the resources available to move residents into permanent supportive housing immediately. And with that, I'm going to go into a clip. Uh, 
David Campos, who's on the Board of Supervisors, uh, spoke up recently about how we need to make it a state of emergency for the homelessness uh, here in San Francisco. So I'm going to link to a clip here, play that, and with uh, Bevan Dufty as well speaking about that. Bevan Dufty, and I've been a city supervisor, and I also have worked in city government to try and change homelessness. I realize that this act today to step forward with a declaration of emergency, it's uncomfortable for some individuals. And I certainly have been there. I've been criticized. I've been told that not enough is happening, that it's unacceptable how people live in neighborhoods, and it's unacceptable how people live on the street. And I think that fundamentally, if you talk to the people on the street, and there was a woman who was just here a few minutes ago, they are experiencing a state of emergency. When you live on the street day in and day out, and it becomes the norm in your life, every day is about not having your possessions stolen. It, is, your, is your partner sick and gonna die if you're not there with them? Uh, is, are the street cleaners gonna come because someone has asked that the block be cleaned and they're gonna lose all of their possessions? It is a state of emergency, and in no way is this a reflection on any individual. And I'm glad that Sam is here, and I respect entirely what he is doing as the director of HOPE. But I want to say that it is more than any one individual. And I think that for too long in this job, I bore it on my shoulders and felt, why couldn't more happen? And the reality is because we need to come together as a city. It's bigger than any of the 11 supervisors. It's bigger than the mayor. Politicians love to manage problems. Lord knows I tried over and over again. You want to solve something. You want to feel like you're responding to your constituents. You want to get things done. You want to feel as though you're effective. But we recognize that in California, we are solving a problem of national magnitude. The simple number of people that are here in the state of California just outstrips anything that a local government could possibly do. And I think that as cities as Seattle and other cities have come forward and declared a state of emergency, the time has come. The time has come for us to set aside some of the division that exists. I was proud of the fact that when I worked in city government, I worked with the Coalition on Homelessness. And that organization makes some people uncomfortable because they're an authentic voice for people who are living on the street. And they are not they are not people that want to see the system remain the same. They deeply want to see change for people. But they know, because they're not isolated from the people who are homeless, all the barriers, all the lotteries, all the waiting lists, all the rules and requirements that are heaped upon people who have not been the most successful in our life more often than not. People who've been failed in family, and maybe they failed family. People who failed in school, and schools didn't support them the way they needed. People who failed in employment and not been able to keep a job. And people that have failed in a city that's the most expensive city in the world for people to be living. What shame is there in people being homeless? I can tell you that when I go to a soccer or basketball game with my kid, I hear every week about someone who's been Ellis Act evicted. That's what I heard on Sunday. I heard about someone who's being moved out for an owner move-in. And the only thing that they can look forward to is that they won't be evicted before June because of legislation that the board passed. So I think that the notion that we can address this issue piecemeal or that people in city government will take offense that this one man who cares and represents a community that is deeply affected not only by homelessness but the constant push of people. Aren't we tired of seeing people just pushed from one block to another? Is there any mystery? 
there's some people that are at the port, and that is wonderful that the city has opened that. But I can tell you that on 11th Street, if you go there right now and walk down by Goodwill, and the people in Goodwill, they're not going to push a tent out into the street. There are dozens of tents there right now. People are not disappearing that are homeless. And this time has come to say, you know what? It costs a hell of a lot more to push people on the street than it does to house them. And I commend the mayor for working with SRO hotel owners and saying that there are thousands of vacant units. But we need to support the mayor and we need roving case managers. We need roving repairs. Philadelphia has shown us how you can take scattered site housing and help to address homelessness. And I think that this is a clarion call today to say we can do much better. And I'm a private citizen, but I believe that I'm responsible for changing homelessness. I think all of you that are here that are going to write about this or listen to these words and share it, you're responsible for taking a stand. And we need to move this out of the political context because you know what? When you politicize this issue, the people on the street suffer. And we're seeing the humanity of the people on the street. And time and time again, that's when the city goes wrong. That's when people make errant comments and say that people will disappear during a Super Bowl and that people who come to our city to spend money won't be offended by seeing people on the street. When you forget the humanity of these people, and I don't because I touch them, and they still call me now. They still stop me on the street. When you forget that humanity, then you've lost. You've lost the cause. And what this says is we remember, we know, and that there's potential and possibility. And what this facility has shown us is that people who have been on the street for 20, 25 years, when treated with dignity and brought to a facility where they know that they're going to be housed and their medical and psychosocial and other needs are going to be addressed, they thrive. And we should have more of these centers. And I am grateful to stand here with David. And I'd like to recognize and invite to speak my good friend, my deep friend who cares so much about all right, so that was uh, Bevan Dufty speaking about uh, David Campos, who has called for a uh, homelessness state of emergency. <sighs> All right, well, let's put on some more music, and then we're back with some more stories. <laughs>
review here are some more news uh this comes from the harvard crimson usually i wouldn't necessarily read this uh or uh, pay attention to it however this uh there's been a lot of people speaking up uh, this this year there seems to be when one person speaks up a lot of whistleblowers it it tends to spread which is great so a lot of people are speaking up um and speaking out about organizations and places and people who are being oppressive and being dicks. That's my professional opinion. So here's one from the Harvard Crimson. Uh, sexual assault report lambast final clubs. Uh, widely condemning the college's all-male final clubs, the Task Force on Sexual Assault Prevention calls on administrators to overhaul the group's practices. And uh, this was written by C. Ramsey Foz. Uh, from the uh, Crimson staff writer. Last fall, the Fox Club's undergraduate leaders, fearing looming administrative sanctions if they remained all-male, admitted women to the club. In a letter defending their decision to the Fox's skeptical graduate board, undergraduate officers wrote that failure to go co-ed would open the Fox to criticism in a forthcoming report outlining Harvard's plans to address sexual assault and gender equity on campus. Worse, Fox and AD club leaders independently argued college administrators could consider prohibiting undergraduate membership in the clubs. The undergraduate suspicions, it seems, were well-founded. In a scathing report released Tuesday, the university's task force on sexual assault prevention blasts historically male final clubs for deeply misogynist 
misogynistic attitudes and calls on the college to formulate a plan to address the problems presented by final clubs. In what is one of the strongest university-sponsored condemnations of the clubs to date. The 20-page the 20 pages of the university-wide report include more than three pages of further observations on final clubs devoted exclusively to qualitative and quantitative analysis of the club's role on campus. In subsidiary research, the task force's outreach and communications subcommittee freely criticizes the clubs and offers recommendations for college administrators in blunt terms. Either don't allow simultaneous membership in final clubs and college enrollment or allow clubs to transition to all gender inclusion with equal gender membership and leadership. The group recommended to the entire task force. The final report sharply condemns the clubs, emphasizing one data point in particular, 47%. This is the percentage of female college seniors participating in the final clubs, including women who attend male final club events and seniors who are members of female final clubs, who reported experiencing non-consensual sexual contact since entering college representing the highest figure among any student groups included in in data from a university-wide sexual climate survey conducted last spring. The corresponding survey statistic for all total female college seniors at Harvard was 31%, suggesting that a Harvard college woman is half again more likely to experience sexual assault if she is involved with a club than that of the average female Harvard college senior, according to the report. The final report, in no uncertain terms, castigates the male final clubs, which have had for more than three decades effectively enjoyed independence from college oversight. The report describes final clubs as emblematic of sexual entitlement, troubling areas of potential alcohol abuse and sexual assault, and vestiges of gender inequity on campus. Though the report says Harvard's sexual assault problem is not solely or even principally a byproduct of the, of the activities and influence of final clubs, it states that combating sexual assault at Harvard must include proposals to address the clubs. The report lists addressing the distinctive problems presented by the final clubs and other unrecognized single-sex social organizations as one of six key recommendations for action. In our view, the very structure of the clubs, men in positions of power engaging with women on unequal and too often on very sexual terms, speaks tellingly to the work ahead of us if we are to create an environment where all students of all genders can thrive, the report states. The qualitative and quantitative information before us is deeply troubling and requires a strong response from Harvard, the report adds. The unprecedented condemnation of sexual assault statistics, membership practices, and alleged aura of of exclusivity associated with Harvard's all-male final clubs is the latest in a series of escalating calls from administrators for for the centuries-old institutions to change their ways. This time, though, the report calls for more than just rhetoric. The task force asks university president Drew G. Faust to mandate a targeted plan from the college to combat issues related to final clubs. 
The clear and powerful call for the university to address issues presented by final clubs relates not only to sexual assault, but also to the implications of gender discrimination, gender assumptions, privilege, and exclusivity on our campus, Faust wrote Tuesday in an email, Har- uh, in an email Harvard affiliates. Mounting scrutiny. Since beginning his tenure in the fall of 2014, Dean of the College Rakesh Karana has focused significant attention on social life broadly and final clubs in particular. After the then all-male SPEE club, there's a SPEE club, after then all-male SPEE club uh, circulated a controversial party invitation last spring, Karana wrote an email to undergraduates emphatically criticizing the invitation as offensive, crude, and sexist. Last fall, Faust, in her most recent, uh, in her most extensive comments on Final Clubs, said she worried about alcohol abuse and sexual assault on Final Club properties. In tandem with increasingly bold public pronouncements from administrators, including Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid William R. Fitzsimmons, 67, administrators suggested in private meetings with undergraduate and graduate Final Club leaders that the clubs go co-ed. Amid the increased scrutiny, the SPEE Club invited women to punch ugh, or apply for membership in early September. About a month later, Fox undergraduates added a pre-selected group of women to their ranks and wrote in a letter to Fox graduates that administrators had forced their hand. If the Fox Club does not become a co-ed club, it will be categorized with all the other clubs when Harvard releases qualitative sexual assault information, undergraduate officers wrote to graduates in October. Racked by internal divisions after the undergraduates' unilateral move, the Fox has not yet granted full membership to their female affiliates, who now hold only provisional status pending a special graduate vote. At least one other club, the AD, firmly opposed membership changes in the wake of administrative pressure and received legal advice on measures the group could take should Harvard mandate the group go co-ed. While Karana has remained tight-lipped on his involvement in the SPEE and the Fox's decisions to go co-ed, the Fox Club correspondents obtained the Crimson suggests that undergraduates believed administrators had imposed a November deadline for the club to admit women. Karana's policy toward final clubs marks a sharp departure from the previous policies that date back to 1984, when the clubs disaffiliated with the university after rejecting an ultimatum to go co-ed. Since then, the clubs have been left alone for the most part, though college administrators did engage with them in a limited capacity. The task force's report leaves no doubt that the final clubs are now an administrative priority. The Outreach and Communications Subcommittee's report says that the final clubs perpetuate gender inequity and an unhealthy social climate, including sexual harassment and assault, making the status quo unacceptable. Criticizing male final club practices ranging from the selection process to parties, the final report is wide-ranging in its condemnation of the all-male organizations. Off-campus and out of administrative reach, the clubs present special opportunities for underage and dangerous drinking, according to the report. Cub club hosted parties have reinforced a sense of sexual entitlement, according to, a rep- according to the report. The report cites student accounts of parties at which the only non-members in attendance were women selected mainly by virtue of their physical appearance, as well as party themes that portray women as sexual objects. 
Students pointed to competitive games between members where a man will win a particular woman or compete for the most sexual triumphs, the report says. The report states that some students worried about their safety when leaving parties. Freshmen women and women from other schools are particularly susceptible to the clubs. Unsafe culture, according to students referenced in the report. Beyond the topic of sexual assault, the report criticizes the clubs for perpetuating what it calls social exclusivity. Freshman men resent being denied entry to desirable social spaces and losing an opportunity to connect with female peers, the report reads. Excluded women feel the same resentment, while women who are included as guests are exposed into a culture often uh, inimical to Harvard's mission and over which women have little control. Other single-gender societal clubs, though, including fraternities, sororities, and female final clubs, do not escape the report's scrutiny. We recommend that any review of social spaces and final clubs include the role of fraternities, sororities, and other unrecognized single-gender social organizations at the college, reads the report, noting that around 40% of female seniors participating in Greek life at Harvard reported sexual assault. Jesus. Compared to the 31% of female seniors in general. Still, the report focuses most of its rhetoric on final clubs. The problem goes beyond the number of sexual assaults that are completed uh, or that originate in a club's physical spaces, as significant as that is, the report reads. Our outreach interviews indicate that final clubs have a disproportionate influence on campus culture. Even newly co-ed groups such as the SPI or, uh, and the FOX, however, may not be exempt from potential college oversight. While the report acknowledges that the situation is fluid, with some clubs going co-ed and others considering it, it recommends periodic college-conducted surveys to evaluate the effectiveness of any changes undertaken by the clubs or by the college as related to the clubs. While the final report does not explicitly suggest prohibiting Harvard students from joining a single-sex organization, it does compel the college to produce a plan to address the distinctive problems presented by final clubs. The report given uh, the report given Karana wide latitude in d- uh, determine to determine the scope and implementation of such plans. We recognize that the university and the college are in the best position to determine the specific actions to address the problems presented by the final clubs, reads the report. We must, we want to express our strong support for those actions that result in the elimination of discriminatory membership practices. If those conversations fall to make, fail to make progress, or if the transition by the clubs to open and non-discriminatory membership practices fails to address the issues we have identified in this report, we believe the university should not rule out any alternative approaches. Uh, it adds. So, whew, that's that's quite a lot, and you can see it kind of coming down uh, systemically. Uh, oof, that's a lot, and um, it's great that it's being discussed. It's one one small step to try to eradicate it altogether. So with that note, we'll go into a um, another piece that's uh, a little bit uh, happier, shall we say? I mean, I guess it's it's always good news when people are speaking up um, about terrible things that are happening. Uh, at least it brings it to light, so that's good. And uh, so from the Windy City Times, uh, 
second Wachowski filmmaker sibling comes out as trans. So now they're the Wachowski sisters. So for, uh, fans of The Matrix or Cloud Atlas, I had this, I had this very discouraging conversation with this person I met last night uh, who was talking about how The Revenant was a great movie, and I was like, no, it's not. In my opinion, I don't think it is. And then he said he hadn't seen Cloud Atlas, and he wouldn't see it. And yet he was still raving about The Revenant. I'm like, well, Cloud Atlas is a better movie, so why don't you go see that one, then we can talk about it. And he was, like, refusing to see it. Anyway, uh, typical. So uh, there's a story about Lily Wachowski, who is the other uh, sibling who has come out. Uh, The second sibling of the Wachowski duo, known as Wachowskis, has come out as transgender. Lily Wachowski, 48, sibling of Lana, 50, came out in a statement to Windy City Times after being threatened with outing by other media. Fuck the other media. Shouldn't out people. Except for, I would say, the closeted Republicans or closeted people in Congress who act anti-gay bills. They should be outed. That's that's where I stand on that. However, uh, other people should not be outed. All right. Ugh. Ooh. I'm not going to read some of this. I don't really want to read that headline. Okay. Oh, this is, okay, this is from Lily herself. Sex change shocker, Wachowski brothers, now sisters. There's the headline I've been waiting for this past year. Up until now, with dread and or eye-rolling con- uh, exasperation, the news has almost come out a couple of a couple of times. Each, uh, each, each was preceded by an ominous email from my agent. Reporters have been asking for statements regarding the Andy Wachowski gender transition story they were about to publish. In response to this threatened public outing against my will, I had a prepared I had prepared a statement that was one part piss, one part vinegar, and twelve parts gasoline. It had a lot of politically relevant insights regarding the dangers of outing trans people and the statistical horrors of transgender suicide and murder rates, not to mention a slightly sarcastic wrap-up that revealed my father had injected praying mantis blood into his paternal ball sack before conceiving each of his children to produce a brood of superwomen uh, hell-bent on female domination. Okay, mega sarcastic. But it didn't happen. The editors of these publications didn't print a story that was only salacious in substance uh, and could possibly have potentially fatal effect. And being the optimist that I am, I was happy to chalk it up to progress. Then last night, while getting ready to go out for dinner, my doorbell rang. Standing on my front porch was a man I did not recognize. This might be a little awkward, he said in an English accent. This might be a little awkward. That's, he said in an English accent. I remember sighing. Sometimes it's really tough work to be an optimist. Amen. He proceeded to explain he was a journalist from the Daily Mail, which was the largest news service in the UK and was most definitely not a tabloid, and that I really had to sit down with him tomorrow or the next day or the next week so that I could have my picture taken and tell my story, which was so inspirational, and that I really don't want to have someone from the National Enquirer following me around, did I? By the way, the Daily Mail is so definitely not a tabloid. My sister Lana and I have largely avoided the press. I find talking about my art frustratingly tedious and talking about myself a wholly mortifying experience. I know at some point I would have to come out publicly. You know, when you're living as an out transgender person, it's kind of difficult to hide. I just wanted, needed, some time to get my head right, to feel comfortable. But apparently... I don't, I don't get to decide this. 
After he had given me his card and I closed the door, it began to dawn on me where I had heard of the Daily Mail. I was, it was the news, news is in quotation marks, organization that had played a huge part in the national public outing of Lucy Meadows, an elementary school teacher and trans woman in the UK. An editorial in the Not a Tabloid demonized her as a damaging influence on the children's delicate innocence and summarized, he's not only trapped in the wrong body, he's in the wrong job. The reason I knew about her wasn't because she was transgender. It was because three months after the Daily Mail article came out, Lucy committed suicide. And now here they were at my front door, almost as if to say, Oh, there's another one. Let's drag him out in the open so we can have all take a look, so we can all take a look. Being transgender is not easy. We live in a majority enforced gender binary world. This means when you're transgender, you have to face the hard reality of living the rest of your life in a world that is openly hostile to you. I am one of the lucky ones. Having the support of my family and the means to afford doctors and therapists has given me a chance to actually survive this process. Transgender people without support, means, and privilege do not have this luxury, and many do not survive. In 2015, the transgender murder rate hit an all-time high in this country. A horrifying, disproportionate number of victims were trans women of color. These are only the recorded homicides, so since trans people do not all fit into the tidy gender binary statistics of murder rates, it means the actual numbers are higher. And though we have come a long way since Silence of the Lambs, we continue to be demonized and vilified in the media, where attack ads portray us as potential predators to keep us even using the goddamn bathroom. The so-called bathroom bills that are popping up all over the country do not keep children safe. They force trans people into using bathrooms where they can be beaten and or murdered. We're not predators, we are prey. So yeah, I'm transgender, and yeah, I'm transitioned. I'm out to my friends and family. Most people at work know too. Everyone is cool with it. Yes, thanks to my fabulous sister, they've done it before, but also because they're fantastic people. Without the love and support of my wife and friends and family, I would not be where I, would not be where I am today. But these words, transgender and transitioned, are hard for me because they both have lost their complexity in their assimilation into the mainstream. There is a lack of nuance of time and space. To be transgender is something largely understood as existing within the dogmatic terminants of male or female, and to transition imparts a sense of immediacy, a before and after, from one, one terminus to another. But the reality, my reality, is that I've been transitioning and will continue tra- to transition all of my life, through the infinite that exists between male and female, as it does in the infinite between the binary of zero and one. We need to elevate the dialogue between the simplicity of binary. Binary is a false idol. Now, gender theory and queer theory hurt my tiny brain. The combination of words like freeform jazz, uh, uh, sizing disjointed and discordant in in my ears. I long for understanding of queer and gender theory, but it's a struggle, as it's a struggle for understanding my own identity. I have a quote in my office, uh, though, by Jose, uh, Jose Munoz, given to me by a good friend. 
I stare at it in contemplation sometimes, trying to decipher its meaning, but the last sentence resonates. Queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and now and an insistence of a, uh, on potentially for potentiality for another world. So I will continue to be an optimist, adding my shoulder to the Sisyphean struggle of progress, and in my very being, be an example of the potentially uh, of another world. Lily Wachowski. Glad and other LGBT organizations strongly condemn the outing of transgender person of a transgender person before they are ready to tell their own story. The Chicago-born Wachowskis are among cinema's most prolific filmmaking duos. Lily is a film and TV director and producer, plus screenwriter, comic book writer, video game director, and writer. She has been married to Alisa uh, Blasingame since 1991. Blasingame. The Wachowski's first film together, oh yeah, with Bound, uh, as directors, was 1996's Bound, which is a great movie, ten times better than The Revenant in every stretch of the, in every every way imaginable. Uh, okay, so their first film together was Bound from 1996, um, still known as a lesbian film classic. They are perhaps best known for their three film Matrix series. Among their other films are V for Vendetta, also great. Uh, Speed Racer, I didn't see that. Uh, Cloud Atlas, yes. Jupiter Ascending, haven't seen it. And the beautiful sci-fi series Sense8, um, shot here in San Francisco, which is great. All right. The siblings attended Kellogg Elementary School in Chicago's Beverly neighborhood on the far south side and graduated from Whitney Young High School uh, in the city's West Loop. After Lana Wachowski came out as a trans woman, she received the 2012 Human Rights Campaign Visibility Award, and in 2014, she received the Equality Illinois Freedom Award. Lana said about her HRC award, There are some things we do for ourselves, but there are some things we do for others. I am here because when I was young, I wanted very badly to be a writer. I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I couldn't find anyone like me in the world, and it felt like my dreams were foreclosed simply because my gender was less typical than others. If I can be that person for someone else, then the sacrifice of my private civic life may have value, as quoted in The Hollywood Reporter. At the 2014 El Gala, Lana said, Fear is not something I let rule my life, but gratitude is. And they have uh, Lana's 2014 speech below. And let's, uh, let's play that. Why not? Thank <laughs> you. 
speed up a little bit. So speak.
only because of the people who came before us who struggled, fought, and sometimes died to make nights like this and lives like mine and yours even possible. Of all the things I love. That was a, a clip of uh, Lana Wachowski uh, giving a speech. So uh, a few days ago, it was uh, International Women's Day, which is one holiday I actually like. I Most holidays kind of get me down, and I don't appreciate even the origins behind them. This one is different, so I was very happy. It should be every day, though, when it comes down to it. So this is an article about the history of it from uh, the Jacobin mag.com and this is the meaning of international women's day the first international women's day was celebrated 103 years ago by revolutionaries in russia and i heard in russia that women get the day off not here in the states though but maybe in the future that would be great and this was written by uh, alexandra uh, kolontai uh, the following article was published in uh, pravda one week before the first celebration of the day of international solidarity among the female proletariats on March 8th, 1913. In St. Petersburg, this day was marked by a call for a campaign against women workers, lack of economic and political rights, and for the unity of the working class led by the self-emancipation of women workers. What is Women's Day? Is it really necessary? Is it not a concession to the women of the bourgeois class, to the feminists and suffragettes? Is it not, a har- is it not harmful to the unity of the workers' movement? Such questions can still be heard in Russia, though they are no longer heard abroad. Life itself has already supplied a clear and eloquent answer. Women's Day is a link in the long, solid chain of women's proletarian movement. The the organized army of working-class women grows with every year. Twenty years ago, the trade unions contained only small groups of working-class women of working women uh, scattered here and there among the ranks of the Workers' Party. Now, English trade unions have over 292,000 women members. In Germany, around 200,000 are in the trade union movement and 150,000 in the Workers' Party. And in Austria, there are 47,000 in the trade unions and almost 20,000 in the party. Everywhere, in Italy, Hungary, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland, the women of the working class are organizing themselves. The Women's Socialist Army has almost a million members, a powerful force, a force that the powers of this world must reckon with when it is a question of the cost of living, maternity insurance, child labor, and legislation to protect female labor. There was a time when working, when working men thought that they alone must bear on their shoulders the brunt of the struggle against capital, that they alone must deal with the old world without the help of their womenfolk. However, as working class women entered the ranks of those who sell their labor, forced onto the labor market by need, by the fact that husband or father is unemployed, working men became aware that to leave women behind in the ranks of the non-class conscious was to damage their cause and hold it back. The greater the number of conscious fighters, the greater the chances of success. What level of consciousness is possessed by a woman who sits by the stove, who has no rights in society, the state or the family? She has no quote-unquote ideas of her own. 
Everything is done as ordered by the father or husband. The backwardness and lack of rights suffered by women, their, subjug- their subjection and indifference are of no benefit to the working class and indeed are directly harmful to it. But how is the woman worker to be drawn into the movement? How is she to be awoken? Social democracy abroad did not find the correct solution immediately. Workers' organizations were open to women workers, but only a few entered. Why? Because the working class at first did not realize that the woman worker is the most legally and socially deprived member of that class, that she has been browbeaten, intimidated, persecuted down the centuries, and that in order to stimulate her mind and heart, a special approach is needed. Words understandable to her as a woman. Okay, uh, The workers did not immediately appreciate that in this world of lack of rights and exploitation, the woman is oppressed not only as a seller of her labor, but also as a mother, as a woman. However, when the Workers' Socialist Party understood this, it boldly took up the defense of women on both counts as a hired worker and as a woman, a comma, a mother, okay? A socialist in every country began to demand special protections for female labor, insurance for mother and child, political rights for women, and the defense of women's interests. The more clearly the Workers' Party perceived this second objective vis-a-vis women workers, the more willingly women joined the party, the more they appreciated that the... the more they appreciate that the party is their true champion, that working class is struggling also for their urgent and exclusively female needs. Working women themselves, organized and conscious, have done a great deal to uh, elucidate this objective. Now, the main burden of the work to attract more working women into the socialist movement lies with the women. The parties in every country have their own special women's committees, secretariats and bureaus. These women's committees conduct work among the the still largely non-politically conscious female population around the consciousness of working women and organize them. They also examine those questions and demands that affect women most closely. Protection and provision for expectant and nursing mothers, the legislative regulation of female labor, the campaign against prostitution, oh... Okay, and infant mortality, the demand for political right for women, the improvement of housing, the campaign against rising costs of living, etc. And there's a little bit more here. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop because I think we all can uh, get get to the drift. The last paragraph is let a joyous sense of serving the common class cause of fighting cause and of fighting simultaneously for their own female emancipation inspire women workers to join the celebration of Women's Day. Okay, so there we have it. Uh, it's you get the the general, the general, gist of it. So moving along, uh, we do have some more. I said that I will be playing uh, folks speaking more, and um, coming up next, I'm going to play uh, Sarah Schulman, who uh, is, a, is a great scholar and author and activist. Um, she was on the show, called in uh, last year. Um, so Nancy Reagan passed away and Nancy Reagan wasn't, was caused a lot of harm. And here's Sarah Shulman on NPR talking about that. So I'm going to bring this up and, uh, it's difficult when, when someone passes away that automatically everything that they've done that to cause harm is, uh, 
overlooked and it's important to remember how people, uh, especially people in positions of power, they should still be not remembered as saints if they caused a lot of harm. And uh, we still have uh, Lana speaking, so we're going to turn that one off and it'll be just a moment here. Uh, let's see here. It'll be just a moment. And here we go. WNYC, I'm Sean Carlson. The tributes to Nancy Reagan continue to pour in following her death over the weekend. Her legacy runs deep. She's credited with redefining the role of First Lady. She championed Alzheimer's research, and she spoke out against drug and alcohol abuse. But there is one chapter of her life that may diminish her legacy. Since her death Sunday, many in the LGBT community have taken to social media to criticize the Reagans for virtually ignoring the AIDS epidemic as it grew in the 1980s. Here to talk about this is Sarah Shulman. She's an AIDS historian and English professor at the College of Staten Island. Welcome back to WNYC, Sarah. Thank you. So help us to understand the criticism directed at the Reagans uh, over, over this issue. Well, Ronald Reagan was completely indifferent to this, the fate of people with HIV and AIDS. When the epidemic was first identified in 1981, it was small enough that had there been full attention by the U.S. government and the pharmaceutical industries, we would not have the global pandemic that we have today. But because of the populations who were affected by HIV, homosexual men, IV drug users, and Haitians, the government had no interest in helping these constituencies. Talk more about why they didn't respond to the growing epidemic uh, in those early years, in, in the early 80s. Well, you have to start with, I mean, the most empowered of all the constituencies were gay men. And in those days, gay sex itself was illegal in the United States. I mean, we did not overturn sodomy laws until 2003. Even in a city like New York City, we did not have a basic gay rights bill. Gay people could be denied housing, employment, or even public accommodation at that time. So in terms of political power, the constituencies involved were just not recognized as legitimate people or legitimate forces in American politics. The epidemic, it wasn't uh, just ignored by the Reagan administration. It was widely ignored in American society generally. So what changed to, to bring it to the forefront? Well, it was worse than ignored. I mean, there was active cruelty and discrimination towards people with HIV. What happened is that the constituencies, as I said, people without legal rights and without really social foundations of support, joined together and through direct action, through the strategy of direct action movements, forced this country to change against its will, thereby saving each other's lives. It's a very dramatic story of how people with very little power can actually transform a nation. And shifting back to the Reagans, um, do you think that when historians look back on uh, the legacy of Nancy Reagan and the Reagan administration, uh, that this will be something that tarnishes that legacy, especially when we talk about the fact that uh, Nancy Reagan, as we said, championed Alzheimer's research and uh, spoke out against drug and alcohol abuse? Um, Will her reluctance to talk about uh, the AIDS crisis diminish her legacy? Well, not only is the global AIDS crisis part of the Reagan legacy, but the fact that the, um, the, the rise of religious fundamentalism and its influences on our national politics are directly a legacy 
of the Reagan administration. So I would say there's almost nothing good to be associated with the Reagan administration. And it's it's very disturbing to, it's disturbing to watch this hagiography of Reagan uh, in our national media since it's so contrary to their actual impact on the lives of Americans and people around the world. Sarah Shulman is an AIDS historian. She's an English professor at the College of Staten Island. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. All right. So that was uh, Sarah Shulman giving a very uh, uh, precise uh, uh, reaction to the the Reagans and their impact on America. Um, talking about speaking truth to power, we play another clip now, and this is Elizabeth Warren, who um, I think is incredible, and many other people do as well. And it's wonderful to have someone like this. I am definitely skeptical when it comes to uh, Congress and just elected officials and that whole mess. However, when there are, there are people who speak truth to power um, and are righteous, uh, that makes me very, very, very happy. So here she is doing just that. Mr. President, there's a vacancy on the most important court in America, and the message from Senate Republicans is crystal clear. Forget the Constitution. It doesn't matter who President Obama nominates, because the Republicans will allow no votes on that nominee. They will hold no hearings on that nominee. Their response to one of the most solemn and consequential tasks that our government performs, the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, will be to pretend that that nominee and President Obama himself simply do not exist, cannot see them, cannot hear them. At the same time that they are blocking all possible Supreme Court nominees, Senate Republicans are in a panic because their party seems to be on the verge of nominating one of two extremists for president. Two candidates who think nothing about attacking the legitimacy of their political opponents and demeaning millions of Americans. Two candidates whose extremism, Republicans worry, will lead their party to defeat in November. Now, these are not separate issues. They are the same issue. If Republican senators want to stand up to extremists running for president, they can start right now by standing up to extremists in the Senate. They can start by doing what they were elected to do right here in the Senate. They can start by doing their jobs. The refusal of Republican senators to execute the most basic constitutional duties of their office is shocking, but it is not new. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the President of the United States shall nominate judges, executive officials, and justices to the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. There is no secret clause that says, except when that President is a Democrat. But for seven years, that is how Republicans in the Senate have acted. Since the first day of the Obama presidency, Republican senators have bowed to extremists who reject his legitimacy and abuse the rules of the Senate in an all-out effort to cripple his administration and to paralyze the federal courts. The Constitution directs senators to provide advice and consent on the president's nominees, and every senator swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. If senators object to a nominee's qualification, they can vote no and then go explain themselves to the American people. 
President Obama and I are members of the same political party, but I haven't agreed with every single nomination he's made, and I haven't been shy about it. But that's how advice and consent works. Learn about the nominees, and then use your best good faith judgment about their qualifications. But Republican extremists aren't voting against individuals based on a good faith judgment about a specific person. No, they are blocking votes wholesale in order to keep those jobs vacant and undermine the government itself. For years, Republicans have executed a strategy to delay votes on confirming government officials across the board. In 2013, only one year into President Obama's second term, Republican leaders flatly rejected his authority to confirm any judges to fill any of the three open seats on the second highest court in the country. And Democrats, had to change the filibuster rules in order to move those nominees forward. Once Republicans took over the Senate in 2015, judicial nominations nearly ground to a halt. And it's not just judges. For months after the president won re-election, Republicans held up his nominees to run the Department of Labor and the Environmental Protection Agency, largely on the suspicion that those highly qualified individuals might actually help those agencies do their work. For years, Republicans held up nominees to the National Labor Relations Board, even Republican nominees, in order to cripple the ability of that 80-year-old agency to resolve disputes between workers and their bosses. For years, Republicans held up the president's choice to run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, refusing to confirm anyone unless the president would agree to gut the agency. Republicans regularly hold up the confirmation of dozens of ambassadors, undermining our national security and our relationships with other nations. Last year, Republicans blocked confirmation of the Attorney General, the highest law enforcement official in this country, blocked her for 166 days. That's longer than it took the Senate to consider the prior seven attorneys general combined. For more than a year, the Republican chairman of the Banking Committee hasn't held a single vote on any of the 16 presidential nominees sitting on his desk, not even nominees who are critical to maintaining the financial stability of this country or the ones who are responsible for choking off the flow of money to ISIS. The message couldn't be clearer. No matter how much it damages the nation, no matter how much it undermines the courts, no matter whether it cripples the government or lays waste to our Constitution, Senate Republicans do pretty much everything they can to avoid acknowledging the legitimacy of our democratically elected president. For too long, the Republicans in the Senate have wanted to have it both ways. They want to feed the ugly lies and nullify the Obama presidency, while also claiming that they can govern responsibly. Well, that game is over.
candidates motivated by bigotry and resentment, candidates unable to govern, candidates reflecting the same extremism that has been nursed along for seven years right here in the United States Senate are on the verge of winning the Republican Party's nomination for president. And now, Republican senators must make a decision. Because here's the deal. Extremists may not like it, but Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008 by 9 million votes. He won re-election in 2012 by 5 million votes. There were no recounts and no hanging chads, no stuffing the ballot box or tampering with voting machines, no intervention by the United States Supreme Court. No. President Obama was elected the legitimate president seven years ago, and he is the legitimate president right now. So if it is true that some Republican senators are finally ready to stand up to the extremism that denies the legitimacy of this president and of the Constitution, I say to you, do your job. Vote for a Supreme Court nominee. Do your job. Vote on district court judges and circuit court judges. Do your job. Vote on ambassadors. Do your job. Vote on agency leaders and counterterrorism officials. If you want to stop extremism in your party, you can start by showing the American people that you respect the President of the United States and the Constitution enough to do your job right here in the United States Senate. Thank you, Mr. President. And uh, that was Elizabeth Warren uh, just pretty much calling it like it is and calling people out in Congress. And it also makes it, things make a lot more sense when you recognize how much people have stood in the way of people just trying to do their jobs and making things happen, and that uh, is so enraging and frustrating uh, that, that that's been happening uh, for years and years. So good for her for calling people out. So I'm going to read another. This is uh, pretty uh, unsettling. Uh, we read the story about the community activist who was murdered uh, last year or I'm sorry, last week read this, and there have been a lot of uh, folks who have been assassinated, and so there's a, uh, kind of, oh, we have a phone call. I'm gonna check in and see who that is. All right, so we are uh, going to go back to what I was mentioning before. So, uh, so in Colombia, four community uh, leaders have been killed in ten days. I'm just reading the. Uh, there's a video that that's attached to this. I'm just reading the the subtitles. Uh, community organizations have demanded an end to state and paramilitary violence. Um, this one speaker is saying. Uh, our campesinos, our students, and our community leaders uh, are being massacred by paramilitaries and the state. And uh, there's one William Castillo. Uh, he is a campesino leader from El Bagre, uh, Antigua, and he was assassinated on March 6, 2016. Uh, student activist from Socha Bogota. I'm just going to go back and read uh, that. Oops, it's gone a little bit quickly. 
So I'm going to go back and... All right. And uh, it's uh, Klaus Zapata, and he was assassinated on March 6, 2016. Uh, the indigenous uh, governor of Gakwa, uh, Alexander Oime, was assassinated on March 1st, 2016. And uh, next is Campesina leader from Tambo Kokwa, uh, Maricela Tombe, who was assassinated on March 1st, 2016. Uh, community organizations suggest if the violence continues, there will be no peace. Uh, community organizations suggest if the violence continues, uh, I'm going to go back. Um, excuse me, I'm just going to go back here. Uh, there will be no peace. All right, so that's pretty discouraging. And with that, I'm going to put on uh, some music, and we'll be back to, to wrap up the show in a little bit. Uh, stay tuned to Women's Magazine with Global Val. Um, she's going to have uh, three folks who are running for uh, Board of Supervisors, uh, which is great. They're all women, and that's wonderful, and looking forward to hearing what they have to say. One is uh, Hillary Ronan, who will be, uh, who is the aide to David Campos, and uh, there's a couple others as well. I'm going to look up their names right now so I can share them with you. Also, while I am um, plugging things happening here in San Francisco, um, people should go check out uh, Mighty Real, the Sylvester musical, which is happening at Brava Theater for a few more days. It was really incredible, and they're heading to Broadway in New York. Uh, a highly entertaining show, great music, great story, great performances all around. Just really, just really incredible. And that's it's just, uh, that's wonderful. So I'm going to go here and just check out... Uh, uh, Val's email here, so we can um, so I can accurately uh, uh, speak about the the three folks who will be on the show, and that's coming up following this, and then following that is the Common Thread Collective at three. So, um, so we've uh, Hillary Ronan will be from District Nine, uh, Sandra Lee Fewer from District One, and Kimberly um, Alvarenga from District Eleven. So they will all be on uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val, and that's coming up next at two p.m. So I'll be playing a little bit more music here, and then we'll be back with to finish up the show. A hush was the first word you were taught, and they watched you wear the clothes they claimed they bought. It brought you down to watch America go around. In fall, you knew how much it cost. But troubled all around your neck when you lost, you wouldn't make a sound. But I could hear your little heart pound. And I watched your feet slip off the ground. Blowing out a key with your sky 
Welcome back to the Weekly Review. We got one more story, and then we'll be signing off. So this is 10 Female Revolutionaries That You Probably Didn't Learn About in History Class. And this is written by uh, Kathleen Harris, and this is from uh, filmsforaction.org. We all know male revolutionaries like Che Guevara, but history often tends to gloss over the contributions of female revolutionaries that have sacrificed their time, efforts, and lives to work towards burgeoning systems and ideologies. Despite misconceptions, there are tons of women that have participated in revolutions throughout history, with many of them playing crucial roles. They may come from different points on the political spectrum, with some armed with weapons and some armed with nothing but a pen, but all fought hard for something that they believed in. Let's take a look at 10 of these female revolutionaries from all over the world that you probably won't ever see plastered across a college student's t-shirt. One, Nadeza Krupskaya. Many people know uh, Nadeza Krupskaya, simple as Vladimir Lenin's wife, but Nadeza was a Bolshevik revolutionary and politician in her own right. She was heavily involved in a variety of political activities, including serving as the Soviet Union's Deputy Minister of Education from 1929 until her death in 1939, and a number of educational pursuits. Prior to the revolution, she served as Secretary of the Iskra Group, managing continent-wide correspondence, much of which had to be decoded. After the revolution, she decided she dedicated her life to improving education opportunities for workers and peasants, for example, by striving to make libraries available to everyone. Awesome. Next, Constance Markovich. Constance Markovich, nay, Gore Booth, was an Anglo-Irish countess, Sinn Féin, and Fianna Fáil politician, revolutionary national, uh, nationalist, suffragette, and socialist. She participated in many Irish independence efforts, including the Easter Rising of 1916, in which she had a leadership role. During the Rising, she wounded a British sniper before being forced to retreat and surrender. After she was... After, she was the only woman out of 70 to be put into solitary confinement. She was sentenced to death, but was pardoned uh, based on her gender. Interestingly, the prosecuting counsel claimed that she begged, I am only a woman, you cannot shoot a woman. Uh, While court records show, she said, I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. Constance was one of the first women in the world to hold a cabinet position, Minister for Labor of the Irish Republic, 1919 to 1922, and she was also the first woman elected to the British House of Commons, December 1918, a position which she rejected due to the Sinn Féin um, abstentionist policy. 
and I'll be just reading one more and then playing a song and come up next will be Global Vow with Women's Magazine. So the last one, I'll finish up the next ones. I won't be here next week, but the week after. Uh, Petra Herrera. During the Mexican Revolution, female soldiers known as soldaderas went into combat along with the men, although they often faced abuse. One of the most well-known of the soldaderas was Petra Herrera, who disguised her gender and went by the name Pedro Herrera. As Pedro, she established her reputation by demonstrating exemplary leadership and blowing up bridges, Ooh, and was able to reveal her gender in time. She participated in the Second Battle of Terron Ter, uh, on May 30, 1914, along with about 400 other women, even being named by some as being deserving of full credit for the battle. Unfortunately, Pancho Villa was likely unwilling to give credit to a woman and did not promote her to general. In response... Petra left Via's forces and formed her own all-woman brigade. I would love to see a movie about that and hear more about that and learn more about that. So we're here at Mutiny Radio. Uh, stay tuned to Women's Magazine with Global Val next. I'll be playing some music. Um, check out other shows here at Mutiny Radio. There's always stuff happening here. Um, let's find a good song to go out on. How about some Nina Simone? All right. Take care, everyone, and have a great week. Understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are So hard, so please don't let me be so 
Tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast god, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at muniradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion. 
at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to SubliminalSF.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics, it's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere fun. $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host 
find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform Radio for free minds. Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. We are continuing uh, the sponsorship questions. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to get to that right away. Sure. Um, so we got a couple vegan questions uh, from Megan and Christina. Megan writes. Uh, I really thought we did all these. Uh, so she opens apologi- apologizing that it took so long, uh, first of all. And then she said, uh, so I'm really good at eating vegan at home and at work. I bring dope lunches that have made so many omnivore coworkers jealous, which we talk about a lot if you bring, like, vegan food to family affairs. Most of the time what happens is your relatives end up eating it, and then they're, then they're like, oh, this is really good. And then you get to be like, yeah, it's vegan. And then we're like, oh, so you're not sad all the time, even though you're a vegan. Uh, so 